0: Brothers and sisters, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 10 through 18. And please raise your hand if you don't have a copy of the sermon notes. And Nolan, if you would give whoever doesn't have a copy of the sermon notes a copy. I'm going to be providing you a lot of other scriptures to draft in with the text and the passage that we're treating today to allow Scripture to interpret Scripture and rightly divide the meaning of our passage that the Lord's bringing before us this morning. Hebrews 2, and I'm going to read verses 10 through 18 in a message that I've entitled, The Death of Death. Follow along as I read. The Word of the Lord says, For it became Him, referring to God, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. For as much then, or some of your translations rightfully could translate it, since then, as the children are partakers of the flesh, or partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved, or so many translations rightly could have, it had to be, That he be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to secure or help them that are tempted. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Well, we come back here to Hebrews chapter two, where we've recognized already that a lot of things, a lot of themes that are going to be played out through the book of Hebrews are coming to the surface, and we dealt many with many of those in verses ten through thirteen. The purpose of God in redemptive history of sending His only eternally begotten Son in order to suffer. We dealt with the theme of the penal substitutionary death of Christ, which really comes to the surface again in verse seventeen today. But since we've already dealt with that. Quite a bit in our last time in this text. We're not going to spend so much time on that. But we are going to look at, we have to, we're forced to look at a restatement, a reiteration of the nature of Jesus' humanity that comes to the surface. We can't ignore that, even though we treated it a little bit. But what also comes to the surface today is a further revelation according to the wisdom of God in verse 10, for whom are all things, by whom are all things. Uh, it was fitting for him. You remember this was God's plan. Now what he does is he shows us some further insights to his purpose that he's already stated, which at the end causes us to look back, follow our faces and worship him even more for his manifested divine, holy wisdom, because his plan is perfect. And that comes to the surface even more today as we go through this text. So in your sermon notes, as you see, we just have two simple headings we're going to operate under. The first is uh, the nature of Christ's humanity. We're going to spend just a little bit of time on that because we spent a lot of time on that in verses 10 through 13. And then we're going to occupy most of our time in verses 14 through 18, dealing with the three purposes that are revealed regarding why Jesus had to become a man and to suffer for the penal substitutionary death of his people, all right? So Christ's humanity is being necessary in the salvation of the sons that are brought into glory in verse 10 is restated in our passage today and furthermore, regarding both his nature and his purpose, more is revealed to us. So let's consider first of all the nature of his humanity, Last time we were forced to consider the nature of Jesus' incarnate humanity when we worked through verses 10 and 11. However, we must, I hope you would agree, at minimum, notice that the writer again in the passage day is stressing the humanity, the nature of his humanity, especially as it's connected with verse 17, being needed to reconcile us. Some of your translations will say propitiate Uh, will appease the wrath of God for our sins. This comes in in verse 14. Look at verse 14. Since then, or for as much then, as the children, that is the church, the sons of glory that were given to Christ, mentioned in verse 13, they are partakers of what? Flesh and blood. He also likewise took part of the same. The children by which God was saved out of fallen humanity had flesh and blood, and that's what that text means. It's not, we can't allegorize that. We can't make that anything what it is. It is what it is. You have bones. You have blood. You have flesh and blood, right? These are the essential qualities, uh, the essential characteristics that make someone human, right? Now, Jesus took upon him that. You have that by nature, but he took upon himself, we see in verse 14, uh, this flesh and blood. Now, this immediately, this text alone, squashes all of the early heresies in the first century church, which were trying to challenge the idea that the eternal son, God of God, light of light actually came into creation and took upon him flesh and blood. But just because they couldn't understand it, many of the false prophets and the false teachers sought to explain it away or come up with a different brand of Christianity, which could be still looked and viewed at and accepted as Christianity, but in fact was complete heresy. And so this was coming against the church early on before even John the Apostle, the last disciple that died, had went on to be with the Lord, very early on. Now, since this has been an ancient heresy, an ancient error, wouldn't you think that the enemies of Christ, those that are anti-Christ, that deny this truth, wouldn't they give up by now? I mean, wouldn't they give up and thinking that, you know what, we just cannot get these Christians, these true Bible-believing Christians, to let go of the concept that Christ, the eternal God, came into flesh and blood. No, they don't give up, do they? They don't give up. Many of you this morning are probably thinking already of certain societies within the Western culture, in fact, all the way around the world, that still promote this same heresy. They go by different names, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but they paint this idea that Jesus isn't the only begotten Son. And we've dealt with that in the past, who come into flesh and blood. This is an ancient heresy. Look in your, in your sermon notes here, at First John 4, 1 through 3, as I alluded to. John was even dealing with this back in the early first century of the church. Beloved, Believe not every spirit, he said, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit, every proclaimer of truth that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of, let's say it together, Antichrist. Whereof ye have heard that it should come, you've been warned, and even now is already in the world. Church, you are not, I am not ever doing nice people in our communities who associate with any teachings called Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, we're not doing them any favors by giving them the impression that they're okay in their position. They are of the Antichrist. Now, right here in Newcastle, there is a, a pretty prominent homeschool co-op that you know a lot of Christian families are part of. And part of that co-op, it's a Christian co-op. I put that in quotes. It's supposed to be Christian. There are Mormons in that co-op who actually are allowed to be instructors in the co-op. Brother Marsh, what I'm trying to communicate to you, when your children get older and you decide if you want to home educate your children and you take them to this co-op, you would be in sin by allowing a Mormon to instruct your son or daughter. They're anti my friends. Why would you put such a predicament upon yourself in that sense? Well, we move on here in this aspect of trying to understand the revealed in nature of Jesus' humanity. Notice in verse 17 this universal Phrase This universal term that's used. Look at your Bibles. It says in verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him. you got to love the old authorized version. Uh, or it, be, it behooved him. Or in the Greek what it means is it had to be in all things he was made like his brethren. Now it says all things. But does it mean absolutely all things? Because his brethren, in verse 10, who were brought into glory by adoption, we dealt with that, and who in verse 13 are called Jesus' children, before the work of Christ and his suffering is mentioned in verse 10, the all things included, and still yet does include in some sense, depravity, remaining corruptions and sins, doesn't it? So was Jesus then in his nature, are we to understand from the inspired writer, he took upon him a nature, a flesh and blood that also was depraved, that also had sin, right? I mean, that's what it says. Well, let's consider the answer to this question in two ways. First, observe the fact that depravity and sin while they are essential part of the makeup of man after the fall, they're not essential to being human. How do we know that? Well, the first man, Adam, he wasn't an alien, <laughs> he wasn't a caterpillar, he wasn't a buffalo. He named them, right? He was a man, he was a human, he was 100% human. And he was 100% human without depravity and without sin. This is, and it has to be the meaning of this text, of Jesus, eternal God of God, light of light, coming into flesh and blood and taking upon him a human nature. It is one that's not depraved and one without sin. Well, do we have anything else to help us with that? Well, we do. We have scriptures. In fact, we don't have to go very far. We go all over the place. But we can stay right here in this epistle of Hebrews, and we find the answer that our understanding of what I just proposed to you has to be correct because Scripture interprets Scripture. Second, consider that this same inspired writer further emphasizes what I just said, the sinlessness of Jesus' human nature, all throughout this letter. But I provided you just a couple samples in the sermon notes. Look at Hebrews 4:15. For we have not a high priest. We're being introduced to the concept of a high priest today. Jesus being a high priest, this is who the writer's talking about. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but but was in all points tempted like we as we are, yet without sin. And so we know that the meaning of the text here, where it says "all things," doesn't mean all things. It means, yes, he took flesh and blood, but it didn't have the effects of depravity and sin, which you and I have no choice of inheriting as the progeny of the first man, Adam. Look at Hebrews 7.26. It comes through again, and we'll move on. For such as a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, notice the phrase, separate from sinners. You can't be described separate from sinners if he was a common man who actually could sin or did sin, and he was made higher than the heavens. Thus, with this passage, the further teaching is regarding the nature of Jesus' humanity, that we while, I'm sorry, is that while he was sinless in his human nature, and he was righteous in his human conduct, being obedient perfectly to the law of God, he nonetheless did, brothers and sisters, what's being emphasized here, assume upon himself. All the common infirmities of flesh and blood which you and I receive by inheritance of a fallen nature. Meaning getting the sniffles. Meaning, getting tired, meaning he got weak, meaning that he did have the composition of human emotions and he could really weep for Jerusalem, Brother Grizz, when his disciples were sent saying, The kingdom of God is hand, and point them to the promised Messiah, and they mocked and ran him out of town. He could weep, he truly was grieved because he loved them, he loved his brethren. It's clear, isn't it? from this entire passage from verses 14 and 18, that the main aim here of the incarnation of the eternal Son into this human flesh, this sinless human flesh, was not only to save the people of God that God gave Him, verses 10 and 13, but also to secure them, the old authorized version, are to aid them, to help them, to minister to them. We see that in verses 16 and 18. This grace, this compassion we see from verse 16 is interestingly not extended to the angels, is it? It's not. There was angels that were fallen. There's angels who rebelled. The incarnate son didn't come to give aid. He didn't take upon himself the nature of angels to rescue or save any of them. They're condemned. They're punished in the lake of fire forever. Oh, but what is man, the psalmist said. What is man? We, we, we dealt with this already. Made a little lower than the angels. That this compassion and this mercy, this affection, this love was set upon them. We see part of His incarnate human flesh was to be an aid to the phrase of the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. Now this is used all throughout the Bible. What does it mean? Who did he come, Brother Grizz, to give this aid to? To give this help to? Which required him to take upon, to come from heaven and take upon himself real human flesh and blood to limit himself as God? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, it's not necessarily the physical descendants of Abraham, beloved, the seed of Abraham, who Jesus came in human flesh and blood to give aid to, to be a merciful and a faithful high priest to. According to Paul, it's rather all of those who possess saving faith like our great patriarch of the faith, Abraham. That's who the seed of Abraham is. That's the children of God given to Christ. That's the sons of glory that Christ brought into the family of God. How do we know that that's right? Well, look at your sermon notes here. Paul says this much in summary at least in Galatians 3, verse 16, dealing with the aspect of the old covenant and the coming new covenant, the realization of it, he gives really this exposition of the promised Abraham and the family of Israel and all this stuff. This is what's going on here in the context. But notice for our purposes of what I just said about who is the seed of Abraham, that the incarnate man has come to rescue, has come to give aid to, to come to minister to. He says in Galatians 3:16, as you see in your notes. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so what Paul's saying there is that when in the Old Testament, God in the covenant promise to Abraham is saying these promises to Abraham's seed What Paul's doing is he's interpreting the Old Testament for us, beloved, and he's saying all of that is wrapped up in pointing forward to the realization of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. The whole purpose for the whole nation that came out of Abraham was to bring forth one seed, Christ. Christ. So is Christ the only exclusive seed of Abraham? No. Because just a few verses later, as you see here, he qualifies who the seed of Abraham is. And if you be in Christ, then ye are Abraham's seed. And get this, the heirs according to the promise. So the seed of Abraham, this is the nature by which Jesus took upon himself to come and secure, to come and to help, is the very elect that spans for all of redemptive history. I wasn't going to go there, but the Holy Spirit with what was going on before church and right now I have to go here, all right? And I usually don't like to do this because I'm getting out of the text and I'm kind of going on a rabbit trail, but I could see you want it, you want it. So I'm going to do it, okay? How can we say that the Old Testament patriarchs that were before the time of the cross that Paul is talking about in Galatians were saved by the cross? I mean, Pastor Doug, the the cross has not happened yet. Uh, It is through the shed blood you taught in verses 10 through 13 by which the sons of glory, the elect, the children, who Pastor Doug, you're saying now are all of those of faith, which include the Old Testament saints. How in the world could that have happened because the cross had never happened? Brothers and sisters, it's very simple. God had decreed and had predestinated all of those before the foundations of the world, Ephesians chapter 1, Romans chapter 8 and 9, who he would send his spirit to and save out of the wretched lot of fallen humanity. He had decreed, he had counseled with the son, Ephesians 1 that the son, here in our verses 10 through 13 of Hebrews chapter 2, would come and to suffer and die for them. Right? So the faith that they had in the Old Testament, they're looking forward to the promised Messiah. They were looking forward to the promise that God said that in the Messiah, your sins would be taken away forever. This is what the prophet Isaiah proclaimed. This is what Zechariah proclaimed. This is what all the prophets were saying. There's coming a Messiah. And so, Abby, just as you cannot physically see Jesus, Abraham could not physically see Jesus But how is he made righteous? How are you, brother Goods, made righteous? By believing with faith, given him by God, in the promised Messiah and the work of the Messiah. The Gospel is one, beloved. The Gospel is the same. So even though his blood had not been shed in time, space, and history yet, he was saved by faith. And why would we ever make the mistake to think that God is limited by time who stands outside of time? By not being able to retroactively apply the blood spilled upon the cross to cover the sins of all of his church. So, in a sense, when Abraham placed his faith in Christ, the work had already been done in God's purview of time. He didn't need to sit around and go, okay, I got a big list here. I got Abraham, I got Isaac, I got Jacob. Boy, we just need to hurry up and speed this thing up so Jesus can actually spill the blood so I can actually forgive them. No. Beloved, when Abraham passed, as we're learning today from this physical world, he was in the presence of God by faith in the Messiah. And he only was in the presence of God because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, with that view, think of how immense the cross is. Think of how ever-flowing and abundant The blood of Jesus on the cross spilled was, brother. It wasn't just from people from 0 AD to now. It was all people who come to faith in the promise of God. Amen? Amen. 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 Well, back to our text here. This is who Jesus has come to minister to. He has taken upon him flesh and blood. So we've gotten a little bit more of an understanding of the nature of his humanity. Some, you could say, technical details. But let's move on now to really the bulk of our time here in the remainder of the passage and dealing with what I see are three purposes that are further revealed to us for the reason he had to come in flesh and blood to die and suffer, verse 10. Verse 10. To bring sons into glory. In addition to verses 10 through 13, 13, there are three additional purposes revealed in our passage today, which will now occupy the remainder of our time. Here are the three purposes that I'm seeing in the text. The first one's this to destroy the devil and to bring him to a point of powerlessness. We see that in verse 14, don't we? The devil, in some way, has some power attributed to him. Secondly, the purpose of His being incarnated and dying, is to free His people, that is His brethren, from the fear of death. We see that in verse 15. And then I believe the remainders of the passages, 16 through 18, are dealing with the purpose of Him being made manifest or revealed as being a merciful and a faithful high priest. So let's deal with our first purpose here in your sermon notes with the devil's destruction, as we see in verse 14. Let's begin dealing with this heading of the devil's destruction, this purpose of why Jesus took upon himself human and flesh by question. In what sense does the devil have any power at all over death? And what is death? It's the taking away of life. So the immediate question in verse 14 is, in what sense does the devil or can the devil have any power over death? which is the taking away of life that we know only God can give. We read it in Isaiah, you remember? I am the creator of the mountains. I am the giver of life, etc. cetera, et cetera. So in what sense does the devil have the power to remove that life, which by the authority and the only sovereign power God can give? Well, to begin to answer that question, I hope we all would agree, whatever we come to in a conclusion or what sense the devil here in verse 14 is described as having a power of death, It can't be an absolute power, meaning that it's unlimited. And furthermore, it can't be an equal power with the giver of life, which is real popular in ancient mythology, uh, Greek mythology. Uh, even popular today under our popular American culture where you have kind of you know good guys and bad guys and they're equal cosmic forces, you know, and they're fighting, and just by chance, right, the good guys win. No, that's that's not the that's not the Bible, guys. There's one sovereign God read about that in Isaiah 45, didn't we? There's one, one, brother Grant, there's your word this morning. You said one. There's one God, and He's the all-powerful one. He doesn't have any competition right the yin and yang uh, little ones you, you'll know this uh, you see the little symbol where you got two little like fish you know the yin and yang they're black and white and that's uh, ancient Asian mythology that there's two equal forces uh, forces you like that English don't you there's two equal forces that are battling one another right Uh, young ones, that all stems from the ancient heresies of the mythologies that could be dated all the way back to Nimrod before the flood. And it it didn't take long from the flood to the Tower of Babel for man to start coming up with a bunch of other inventions of other religions. So that symbol, Naomi, you've asked Dad about that before, of the black and the white fish, that's an error that's very popular over in Asia. And now it's coming to America too, the land you live in, that says that there's two equal forces, evil and good, that fight each other all the time. Well, whatever power that the devil has over death, it isn't equal with the power of God giving life. We at least have to say that. But how do we know that? Well, we know it because Scripture tells us, beloved. Look at 1 Samuel 2.6 in your sermon notes. The Bible says that the Lord killeth. Right? The Lord takes life. And the Lord maketh alive. He brings down to the grave. And he brings up. So here clearly the attributes are the power over death and life. Absolutely is a sign to who? The Lord. Right? Again, we could list a bunch, but here's just another one. Psalm 6820. He that is our God is the God of salvation. And unto God, Elohim, the Lord, the covenant name of God, belongs the issues from death. But the Lord belong the issues of death or from death, right? It's absolutely wrong for the Christian to ever attribute any sorts of quality of power and strength to the devil that only God assigns to himself. I think sometimes in the Christian community we can get a little sloppy with our language. Hey, beloved, I I get sloppy sometimes with my language, right? And and sometimes i got to go back in from the pulpit and say, hey, I misspoke here or I said this. I didn't present that the right way. How many of you could testify? You 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 misspeak sometimes. You don't think something all the way through. But, you know, we have to be careful with this idea of saying, you know, assigning too much power to the devil. Uh, I have some family members, extended family members, And, you know, they have the Jesus T-shirt, and I'm not questioning their salvation here, but I'm saying they're very loose with their language of giving the devil too much power, you know. Well, the devil did this. The devil did that. And you almost get the sense, they would never say this, but you almost get the sense that this devil is like this rogue, loose cannon, running around, you know, under no authority, totally unlimited with his yielding of power and his abilities. That's not true. That's not true at all. We'll get, to in a minute, uh, we'll get to the point in a moment that, yeah, he's to be respected, uh, but he is under the sovereign dominion and power of Almighty God. Okay, well, it's not absolute power, and we know that it's not equal power with God. It can't be. What does it mean then? Well, there's four various interpretations that we could consider and light up. Uh, not all theologians have been entirely agreed on this. One's an extra biblical source. It comes from the Talmud. Now, the Talmud is uh, the source of Jewish religious laws and Jewish theology. The Talmud is rabbinical writings that have been treasured by people who, after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., uh, began to compile, and it began to be an intimate part of how those after 70 A.D. would practice their faith. Yeah, they got the first five books of Moses, But they added to the first five books of Moses. And so the Talmud is to Jews today, practicing Jewish religion, what the Bible is to Christians. It's their book. And so for someone to say they're a Jew, truly, honestly, historically, it has to be someone who practices Talmudic Judaism. But the Talmud and the beliefs of the Talmud are so intertwined with the identity of a Jewish person and their culture that many people identify themselves as Jews, but they don't practice the religion of the Jews at all. It'd be much like an American who goes to a family's church, a family member's church on Christmas or Easter and say, yeah, I'm a Christian. You're not really a Christian. You're an American, but you're not a Christian. It's kind of like that in Israel. There's, There's a lot of people that identify as Jews. They go through some of the different traditions that historically have religious significance tied to them, but they're as pagan as the day is long. They're not Jewish, right? Well, this book called the Talmud, it's a book that teaches that the devil is the angel of death. He's been assigned, we all know he's a fallen angel, he's been assigned as the angel of death. And so God, in a sense, grants him in his special angel role as the one who's going to go around and minister death and take away life that God gives. Right? This has largely and still is not believed by the Christians uh, in the church. Historically, they never believed this, nor they ever argued that way. He's a judged angel. Uh, yes, he's given some liberties, we know from the book of Job, but he's never given the, the, the power to take away someone's life. God told him in the account of Job, you, remember, you could do anything to him, but you won't take his life. Don't take his, don't, don't, don't take his life. Some argue that this meaning is to be uh, connected with, I, I call it the, um, the garden incident, the view that since Satan was so instrumental in bringing about the fall, which subsequently leads to death, in that sense he can be regarded as having some sense of power of death, right? Others argue still that he's not an executioner of death like the angel of death, but rather, and this is true, he's a tempter, he's a deceiver, and so he has the power of death in that he goes around and he seduces men into sin, which indefinitely leads to both physical and spiritual death. And so with his power of death, his, his power of subdu- subduction and temptation, he yields the power of death over mankind. And still, some argue, I thought that this was very interesting, and I'm going to bring your attention to the book of Revelation. Some argue that the devil has the power of death because he's the accuser of sinful rebels. Now, how does this work? Well, the way this works is in light of Revelations 12.9. Let's just read it, okay? I thought this was really interesting. Revelations 12.9-10. The great dragon was cast out. The old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Now, what's that? That's judgment, isn't it? Did Satan get a pass? Did he get, you know, time out? No, no. He got the full wrath of God, didn't he? Right? So he knows, Colin, what it's like to be judged by God, to not get a second chance. Okay, now go on to verse 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down. What's What's He doing? Which accused them before God day and night. So some interpret this power of Satan over death, one who knows what it's like to be judged, to be standing as the pleading prosecutor before the throne, the righteous, just throne of God, saying, look at him. Look right there. He deserves death. If you were just in a consistent holy God, you would give him death. You gave me death. You casted me in the lake of fire. What about him? What about him? And so in that sense, he's executing a power of death, right? That's pretty plausible. While we would, as we already mentioned, never be justified as Christians to think that the devil has unlimited power of death or equal power with God, considering, however, in light of what we just reviewed, that he does, or he was rather, instrumental in bringing about the fall of our first parents and the sentence of death which patched upon all men. And in view upon the fact that he does go around and tempt men to sin which leads to death. And in light of scripture that he is accuser of the brethren that they deserve death. I believe all of those is what's meant in the sense that Satan has the power of death. That's what it means doesn't mean he's like God, but in his role as deceiver, in his role uh, in the garden, in his role as the accuser, he delights in death. He has the power. He has control of, in some sense, of darkness and death. Is it limited? Yes, it's limited because God's the only one that's unlimited. Even though it's limited, does it mean he's harmless? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If anyone doesn't take the devil seriously, you're a fool. Well, that's the power of the devil. But in what sense, though, in verse 14, is this power of the devil, his destruction, is it brought about or is it removed by the death of Jesus is why he took upon this humanity, this first purpose. Well the simple but the very profound answer I believe is this he stripped this power he stripped this control from the devil in the same way that he stripped death of its power and also brought life and brought immortality through the gospel look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 it's now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. How did He appear? Took upon Himself flesh and blood, didn't He? I manifest Him here. Died on the cross. Okay, Now it's made manifest, the Apostle Paul says, by the appearing, the coming of the Messiah, of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, removed it of its power, removed it of its sting, removed it of its victory, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel being mentioned here in 2 Timothy. We talked about it a lot in verses 10 through 13, but just so we're clear here in the context of today, we know from our time in verses 10 through 13 that the gospel is centrally this in the life of the church. It is the good news, in fact the amazing news, that by Jesus' death on the cross, he took upon his own body the penalty due to the sins of his people, penal substitutionary death. And thus, by the sacrifice of himself, Jesus made propitiation for those sins of the church, simply meaning he appeased the holy and the just wrath of God that was set against all of those who had rebelled against his law. That's how he removed the power from the devil, through the gospel, through the good news of the gospel. He removed the sting and the power of death. We're going to learn a little bit more in a moment. And that's the same way he stripped from Satan the power that he had over death in his accusing the brethren, in his courtroom processions up in the heavenly realms that we can't see but are going on, we're told in the Bible. Um, by this action, I think we're seeing here in our text, we learned that Jesus released, he released those whom He represented the children, the brethren, from what? Liability. He released us from all liability unto what in the Bible is called the second death. Yes, we're going to die a physical death, but we're seeing today here that power of death that Satan is instrumentally somehow involved with, it's stripped of its power through what we know took place upon the cross. The second death is referred to as the eternal death and the Bible is referred to as the lake of fire, commonly known as hell. And so when Jesus died upon the cross, that's how he took power away from the devil and his control over death. His usage of death, accusing, of deception, of bringing about darkness and death. This consideration of the lake of fire and the second death is very real. That the devil, he delights in getting as many people as possible to succumb to his deceptions so that he could stand before the tribunal court of God and say, look at all of these fallen sinful men who have committed. They deserve what I got. sent them all to the lake of fire. The second death. Look at your notes here from Revelations 20, 14 and 15. Of course, this is what the second death is. This is what's being referred to here that we have been set free from. The lake of fire, the text says, is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, how? Through the gospel. He was thrown into the lake of fire. And so with all of that, we can conclude that Jesus' sacrifice of himself upon the cross, it stripped the devil of his power of bringing any accusations against the church of God, the chosen of God, the children of God given to Christ. This leads us naturally into the second purpose. Not only was he to destroy this power of Satan and uh, uh, this control of the second death, but also was to free us not only from the consequences of that death that we won't experience, but also the fear that comes with knowing there's a second death awaiting. That's what comes through in verse 15. Look at verse 15. And here's our purpose. This is all a perpetuous clause, you could say, from 14 to 16. And to deliver them who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The second purpose we see, beloved, here of the incarnation, the suffering and the death of Jesus, the eternal son, was to free his people from the bondage and the fear of death. There is a fear of death that's natural to all men. It's necessary for self-preservation. You wouldn't jump out of an airplane without a parachute, right? That doesn't mean you're brave. That means you're a fool, right? Because you have a fear, a natural fear to preserve your life. But the fear that's being spoken of here in verse 15, which is the reason, the purpose further revealed to us now outside of verses 10 through 13 of why Jesus died upon the cross, why he took upon him flesh and blood, was to remove from us that fear that's connected with the conviction of sin and the known judgment that awaits just beyond the grave. That's the fear that's being mentioned here. We learn here in verse 15 that all mankind outside of Christ's protection, outside of the covering of His penal substitutionary death upon the cross, they are enslaved by this dreadful fear. They can't help it. They know, the text says, who through the fear of death with all their lifetime they've been subject to this bondage. And let's be absolutely clear, unjustified sinners in verse 15 or rightly haunted, aren't they, by the reality that they will stand before a thrice holy God with Satan right there, if you allow me the liberty, to be an accuser of why they deserve the second death in the eternal lake of fire. This will happen for every man, woman, boy, or girl. They will have a physical death and they will stand before the judgment of their Creator. And verse 15 is teaching that all mankind has this looming fear hanging over them that plagues their conscience. Every person, no matter how hard they attempt to escape the truth of their own mortality through whatever means the vain world may offer, they can never succeed in hiding from this morbid reality. Why? Why can't they hide from it? There's so many things in Vanity Fair that attempt to get us to forget about this moment of rally. I mean, for Pete's sakes, you go to a funeral nowadays and you think it's a party. It's not a funeral. When was the last time I went to a funeral? Just about a month ago, and I was I felt so sad that this gospel minister has this prime opportunity for a whole group of people to talk about how you escape death and why death is here. And it was just a memorial service about the virtues of the person dying. And while that may have a place in the ceremony, oh, the main purpose of that gospel minister, what? Was to exalt this reality that every single one of you in here, whether you're running from it, trying to hide from it, using different mechanisms to forget about it, you know in your deepest heart of hearts that you too will face death. And how do you stand in the courtroom of God? Why can't common man run away from it? Despite all the devices we have today. Because the nagging testimony of their conscience can never shut out the sober reality that God as their creator, he has stamped upon it. That truth comes out in Hebrews 9.27. This reality, which everyone has stamped upon their conscience. It's appointed unto men once to die, but after this is the judgment. You see, God endowed man's conscience with this knowledge of his own human mortality at the very same time that he wrote his law, his moral law upon their hearts that they suppress and they deny and they rebel against as mentioned in Romans 2, 12-16. And thus it is this knowledge written upon man's heart at his birth that we see here in our passage produce this binding fear that subjects man to its reality. This is applicable to the average person. Oh, but there is people who don't have a fear of death in the world. And who are they? Well, I'll offer to you, there's three people who have no fear that's being mentioned in verse 15. The first type of person that doesn't have the sort of fear that someday they will die and stand before a holy God and have to do an account which is stamped upon their conscience, upon their birth is those who have bludgeoned their conscience into total silence. You see, one of the unique things we learned about this when we talked through the book of Genesis quite some time ago, being created in the image of God, that he gives us this faculty of a conscience as man, as this little radar that, that speaks to us about right or wrong. It's a sensitivity gauge, you could say. And you know when it goes off, it's 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 telling you that this this violates the moral law of God. Don't do this. This isn't right. But we do have in the depravity and the nature of sinful man this ability, this this odd self-destructing ability to say, "No, you be quiet. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to you get the sledgehammer out and you bludgeon it down." And so it's your conscience telling you, "Don't go there. Don't look at that. Don't taste that. Don't say that. Don't believe that. Don't go there." And what do you do as man, as natural fallen man? You get him in a headlock and you beat him down. I remember Dr. Peter Masters at LRBS, He, if you ever want to hear the teachings of the conscience, the faculty of the conscience, just being so simply explained and how it's your greatest ally in your Christian walk. God has given you this as your greatest ally in His Word and His Spirit to help you in your life with Him. Peter Masters used to always talk about in the palace of faith, there's these residents there. There's the Spirit and there's the Word. But oh, dear brother, don't forget your conscience. It's what God's blessed you with to help you and I to walk with Him in the paths of holiness. And oh, what blessedness there is in a life of holiness. Undescribable. Well, there are some who bludgeon that, but will it totally free them from this fear this being verse, mentioned in verse 15? Well, it will achieve its purpose of silencing it for a long time, indeed a very long time. But as that person who has silenced and bludgeoned their conscience of their known rebellion against God, who they've never asked for forgiveness, who they've never bowed their prideful hearts to, as they draw closer to the deathbed, what happens? That conscience begins to roar up. It begins to start shedding a spotlight on all those areas that they used God's name in vain, how they've mocked the church, how they've tried to rob the faith from uh, the, the, the Christians, you know, in their maybe workplace or their family context. And we have many, many accounts of the most hardened atheist who bludgeoned their conscience all their life on their deathbed, crying out for forgiveness. Well, that's the people who you would walk into and say, no, I don't have a fear of death. And in fact, you probably know some of these people, but I think that the second group of people I'm about to mention to you is the most deadly and the most prevalent, especially in the West. And it's those who have silenced this fear mentioned in verse 15 with false hopes, with false hopes. How has this come across? Well, they've created an idol, not the biblical God. They've created a God of their own figment, of their own imagination. And beloved, perhaps some of you have fallen into this error too before you were taught the truth of Scripture and about the one true God. And they think to themselves something like this. Well, you know, I believe And you probably have witnessed encounters like this in your workplace, in your, amongst your friends, young ones. That I, I saw it in the movie skit you guys just did. This was uh, the role Isaac played. Uh, the kids are doing the movie skit, and there's a scene in there where uh, Nolan and his character are sharing the gospel with Isaac, who's Mike, I think. And Mike says, "Well, you know, I think that when I get to heaven, God, you know, will treat me fairly, uh, you know." And the idea behind that and the premise is, is you know, for the most part, on the scales of right and wrong, I've done more right than I've done wrong. I help my elderly widow neighbor next door. I go to the grocery store for her. I mow her grass. You know, oh shucks. You know, I even give money to good causes, charitable causes, especially around Christmas time. I, I feel really you know, charitable around that time of the year. And so this poor chap, what's he have, Grizz? He has a false hope. He thinks that he's going to stand with Satan the accuser right there, and God who has a holy, righteous law that has to be met perfectly and was only accomplished by one, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, which no good job in the, the movie, you said that was the only way, um, he th- this poor chap thinks that God's going to look at all of that and, go, and kind of wink and say, yeah, you know what? I didn't give Satan a second chance, but you, boy, you're a real piece of work. You, you're really good. I'll give you a second chance. An angel, and, and Luc- or we know Lucifer was the most eminent angel of all of heaven. I'm sure he had numerous qualities about himself, right? But when he violated God's law, God judged him. And and, and, and we learned today in verse uh, 14, 15, and 16, especially 16, that the angels don't have any mediator, do they? Why does this false hope coddle people to sleep so much? I'll tell you why. Because at funeral services, brother, we're not facing people with the reality that they're clinging to a false hope. And many of them, dare I say, may even have a cross necklace on, brother. And they still say that there's somehow a, 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 a scale that God's going to weigh them on. And this is prevalent, maybe we, I know this isn't popular, but this is prevalent in most of the Roman Catholics. They still believe that it's Jesus plus their good works. That's not going to pan out. That is not going to pan out. That false hope is calling them into a false security that's going to condemn them to the eternal lake of fire if they don't trust Christ and Christ alone. It's in the text right here. It's the purpose why He came. To remove the fear. How can He remove the fear, brother, if it still has to rest on me somehow? I mean, because if that's the case, I have every reason to fear. And if you're honest, before the examination x-ray of the Holy Spirit this week, who of you today would stand comfortable standing before God if it rested upon you? Yeah. Amen. We are sinners saved by grace. It's not an excuse for sin. Of course not. Uh, what's Paul say uh, what, do we, we, we foster an attitude that we sin because grace abounds no that's foolishness oh but but we are realists right we still know that we're in the process of sanctifying that's the whole meaning of this text beloved that's how he removes the fear of death because it rests totally upon his propitiation his recon, uh, reconciling work and so that leads us to the third group who don't fear death it's the ones being spoken of, of here in the text it's those being justified by faith in Christ that have true peace with God. Look at the sermon notes. Romans 5.1 says this much. This is the third right group of people who don't fear death. Ought not to fear death. I want to encourage you this morning that you shouldn't fear death, the physical death that is, because the second death doesn't await you. The Bible says, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's right here that we see In Romans 5.1, in connection with our text, that as Jesus' church, we find a precious purpose for His incarnation and His sacrificial death. And that is, by taking upon Himself our deserved liability as law transgressors, we are free from the claims and the cruel punishments of the second death. And this is what we mean when we say the death of death. For the Christian, death, the second death, is stripped of its power, Satan stripped of its power, and so we have complete peace. Just as a small child is timid to walk in an unfamiliar dark room, unless their older brother goes before them and leads the way. And you all of your childhood remembers this. Uh, I remember at our old home on Park View, down by Brookside, we had a basement, and my dad had all his tools down there. And I so bad wanted to go down there and mess with dad's tools, and you know, get into his stuff, and kind of just you know have fun. But I wouldn't go down there, by myself, because it was dark down there. And unless I had one of my older cousins go down there with me, I'm not going down there roller skating in the basement floor. No, 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 <laughs> y'all got to go with me. You see? But we're learning in our text today that Jesus Christ taking upon Him flesh and blood going to the grave, removing the power from the devil, and of death itself, and by his resurrection. Oh, brother Grizz, upon the physical death, he's older brother who's leading the way. We have no reason to fear. And I would speculate, dear friends, if you are resting in Christ, in Christ alone, not any of your works whatsoever, Your only hope to plead before the holy, righteous throne of God and that wicked accuser of you, of all of your failures, is the perfect obedience of this blessed Savior who left all of the glories above to come and to die upon the cross, to sympathize with you, to secure you, and to save you. If that's your only hope, let me tell you, I believe that upon your death, it is going to be the most existential, blessed reality that you will ever experience. I, I, I think it's something that we're not even going to be able to put into words as your physical body is dying and your soul is being liberated from its tomb to be with Him. We can't even bend it to fathom it. Oh, Church, don't ever, ever think you have to approach your physical death with any obscurity or anomaly of uncertainty. No, when you rest in Christ, in Christ alone, you will have complete peace, brother, to go from this to the next world and a new experience that you cannot even remotely begin to put into words. In other words, death for us is graduation day into something other, into something better, something far beyond our greatest and most blissful imaginations. And listen to how an old Baptist preacher named Hercules Collins put it. He wrote this Baptist catechism called the Orthodox Catechism. And in question 41, he asked the question, since Christ died for us, then why must we die? Look with me in your sermon notes, guys. Our death is not a satisfaction for our sins. It's not as if um, we're coming to death and our physical death to kind of, you know, in any way give a penalty for sin or be judged for sin or anything like that. Notice what he says. No, no, no. To the unbeliever, yes. But look what it says. But our death... Is the abolishing of sin upon its grips upon us, right? And our passage into everlasting life. I know it sounds morbid. I know you're going to look at me kind of odd, but physical death, it's kind of exciting for a Christian. <laughs> No, don't get me wrong. I'm not telling you to go out here and do reckless, crazy things so that you can meet an early death. That's 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 you know silly. You don't talk like that. Oh, but but I'm trying to impress upon us the reality of the text today. Man, physical death. Brother, it's graduation day. Look at the text. Paul certainly thought this way, didn't he? This graduation, this abolishing of sin over this body, this tomb that our souls that have been liberated in Christ are trapped in. Romans 7.24, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from what? This body of death. Boy, there's certain days I want to be delivered from this body of death. Me and Jessica have been talking about how we can't see anymore, we can barely remember anything, and we're only in our mid-40s, Right? Oh, listen! Look at the precious text we have, though uh, that brings forth this truth in Philippians one twenty three. Paul further also, who all oh, grasped this, I believe. I believe he wrote Hebrews, um, but listen what he wrote also here in Philippians one twenty three. He says, talking about his love, his his real sincere love for his Jewish brethren who have been rejecting Christ. He says, "I am in a strait between you two. I, I'm in a dilemma." He says, having a desire to depart. And what? Be with Christ is far better. It's far better. I don't have it on my notes here, but you know, that doesn't mean we like trudge through life. <laughs> you know, like oh, this is I gotta get through this, you know, until my graduation day. No, Paul didn't have that attitude, did he? We see in his life, his ministry, his activity amongst the church, right? Oh man, he saw that his time that he spent here on earth was as he wrote a time to redeem the days for for they are evil, right? And we're to be about that same business. Boy, it puts a whole new perspective, doesn't it, on our time here that we have. Man, let's be just, you know, kicking. We say on the job sites, hey, we got three days to do this, we got to kick it. I'm sure you guys got your own culture and phraseology at your construction sites. Let's be kicking it as Christians, right? Let's kick it in gear. You know, what is it in our lives, brothers and sisters? You know, personal, family, church, community. Uh, man, because the, the graduation day, as soon as going to be here. Amen. All of this leads us to our last purpose and to end our message today. And I wish I had more time to treat it because I am way over my time. And since I am, we're going to look at Christ as a merciful and faithful high priest next Sunday next Sunday. I think that's what we need to do. Alright, let's go to the word and Lord in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, we, Lord, thank Thee for the time that we have had together in Your Word. O oh, God, we are humbled by its many truths that it reveals especially the truth of how that in Jesus Christ, who took upon Him flesh and blood, free from any unrighteousness, free from any sin, Lord, He paid the price that we could not pay, and that in His work and His work alone, all the power of the accuser, that is Satan, all the power that death and the grave would hold upon us is stripped and made void. We are truly free in Christ and in Christ alone. Encourage, I pray, O God, the hearts of your sons and daughters here this morning, Help us, O Lord, not to morbidly look unto our physical death, but at the same time, God, to properly put it in view. And even as we approach that Jordan River that sometimes is symbolized as our crossing of death in this life to next, as I have witnessed in the life of those who have totally believed the real gospel and they believe in Christ and Christ alone for their acceptance into your kingdom, I have witnessed that they are the most just joyful people. They are most humble, at peace people. And they have a certain powerful testimony that others cannot touch. And I pray that all of those in this room today who have experienced walking down through this text and its meaning, that God, you would bless us with that reality. That as we too face our own physical deaths, that we would see What a blessed liberation it will be. Oh, how it would be the abolishing, as old Hercules Collins said, upon sin and its curse upon our bodies and in our minds. I pray that you would give us, Lord, a word in that season of our lives to minister to all of those around us. We bless you. We need you. We thank you. And oh, how we worship you today. In Jesus' holy name. We ask these things. Amen.